and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. The purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and forces that have shaped leaders in higher education and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. I'm delighted to be joined today by Shirley Cayado. Shirley is the current president of Ithaca College, a post she's held since 2017. She previously served in executive leadership roles at Rutgers University, Newark, Middlebury College, and Posse, a not-for-profit organization and one of the most comprehensive college access programs in the country. She's the first in her family to achieve a college degree, earning her bachelor's degree from Vanderbilt University and her master's and doctoral degrees from Duke. Shirley is a national thought leader on diversity, collaboration, innovation, and she's been integrally involved in the development and leadership of several major national efforts and, and, and consortial activities that promote college access and social justice, as well as faculty diversity and innovation. Shirley's announced recently that she'll be leaving Ithaca and is headed early next year to become president and CEO of College Track an organization focused on helping low-income and first-generation students complete their college education. Um, it is a real pleasure to welcome you, Shirley, and I look forward to the opportunity to, uh, to reflect on how College Track, in a way, brings you back full circle, because if my memory is right, I think you were among the very first beneficiaries of the Posse program that got its start at Vanderbilt. That is right, Jay. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here and looking forward to this conversation. Well, let's get started. As I said, you're a first um, um, generation um, um, student in your own right, the first person in your, in your family to earn a college degree. Um, as I just mentioned, I'm a member of Posse's inaugural class and as well further the first Posse scholar to uh, receive a doctoral degree and become a college president. Can only imagine um, how proud um, that must make um, uh, uh, Debbie Beal and, and Alma Pedersen. <laughs> yes, two, two very uh, special women in my life, but yes, absolutely. Well, I'd love for you to share some of your story with our listeners and and talk about um, uh, any of those people who've had a profound influence on you and and have forged the person and the leader that you've become as your journey in higher ed unfolded. Sure, Jay. Well, thank you for the question. I think origin stories and how leaders in the academy end up doing the work that they do are so important. And, you know, I tell people often, you know, there actually isn't anything really remarkable about me, because if you look at the talent that is around this country and K through 12 and public and private institutions among students, there are many first-generation college students. There are many students who are um, not only first in their family to go to college, but you know are coming from low-income backgrounds or in vibrant and diverse communities all over the country. And so um, I had the incredible um, good fortune 
of not only being in the inaugural class of Posse scholars, but also, you know, growing up in a family, a Dominican family, my parents hail from the beautiful country of Dominican Republic. Um, I am the eldest child and only girl. Um, and three of us were raised, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, in my neighborhood of Sunset Park. And my dad drove a cab in New York City for well over 30 years. And my mom worked in a factory alongside her mother and her sister making baby garments. Um, all the while I was growing up and raising my two brothers. And so, you know, my story really is, uh, you know, a, a Brooklyn girl with incredibly loving parents in a vibrant and socially um, active around social justice uh, community uh, that had a real sense of belonging. Um, uh, absolutely, I was going to go to college but uh, like a lot of first-generation kids, my family didn't really know, right, the difference of navigating across systems. And so I was going to go to the Great City University of New York, uh, and my dream school was Brooklyn College. As you know, CUNY is an incredible uh, engine for economic and social mobility and building knowledge in the Great City of New York. And my plan shifted because I got to, I met Debbie Beal. I've known her since I was in my teens and ended up getting on a Greyhound bus with four kids, uh, then a pilot program, right? Sight unseen to Nashville, Tennessee, to Vanderbilt, my alma mater, where I now serve on the board of trust. And I'll leave you with this, you know, as we start that bus ride, that Greyhound bus ride really has defined my entire career around access and affordability and issues of equity in the academy. And it's largely about like, who gets to get on that bus in the first place? And when you're on that bus ride that is on the journey to college, who's supporting you along the way? And for me, I had my posse a program and that Greyhound bus ride was five moms and five kids. And that's how my college journey began, 26 hours, to Nashville, Tennessee from New York City with five mothers entrusting an institution with their kids. And, uh, and then the rest is you know, pretty much uh, quite the journey that gets really interesting. So just out of curiosity, um, were you going to move in or was this actually <laughs> a visit to see if it was going to, was it a, a recruitment visit or were you, Sight unseen. Oh, great. Great question. <laughs> great question. So as you know, Jay, it is actually still a privilege in America to go on to college tours, right? Most students who uh, don't have the means, who um, are not willing or do not think it's possible to go across geographies, across states, um, usually, you know, don't have the luxury. And I did not have the luxury. I, I, so to be very uh, upfront, you know, I come from a traditional Catholic Dominican family. My parents were not going to allow me to go to school beyond New York City. I was going to commute mm -hmm. and continue to stock shelves at a local pharmacy where I had worked for years, continue to uh, financially um, contribute to the family and continue to support raising my brothers, my yeah. two younger brothers. And so the thought of going away was unheard of, let alone um, visiting places beyond my own uh, neighborhood. And so, cause my family needed me and it wasn't, it wasn't the type of thing that I had ever thought about. So believe it or not, we got on a Greyhound bus, five of us with our five mothers. This is an infamous 
Posse story because most Posse's now are 10 to 12 students. Right. Um, back then there were five of us. We were literally trying something out, right? And uh, under the incredible vision of Debbie Beal and three of us, myself included, could not afford to fly to Nashville with our moms and have our moms come back home. So we all agreed. Uh, and again, this is not a group of friends. These are students who don't know each other right at this point. Um, get on a bus so that all of us could actually go and have our moms accompany us. And my mother was with me. I had a suitcase and two boxes. My mother was with me for just under three hours, saw where she was leaving me and got back on a bus with those two, five, four other moms. And there it was. That's how the first posse got started. And I never forget the feeling of what it was like to be in that bus, to not know what was ahead beyond a view book that I had read. And I'm going to date myself, Jay, you know, no internet, no cell phone, no email system. I mean, this is, you know, I relied on a book that I saw with beautiful pictures of what Vanderbilt University was like. And to me at the time, it was like another universe, another place that I had never imagined going to. So it was a lot of the mixed feelings that I think first-generation college students face, especially when they're going to a completely different part of the country and a, and a different part of their lives. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for clarifying, because I, I kind of suspected that that's what it was, and it increases the impact and the power of, of, of that story. And yet I do think for um, um, many, you know, the college search process has become so much more complicated than um, in, in earlier days. But I'm also, I'm, I'm loving the notion of um, having, you know, um, uh, engaged with Posse throughout my own career and, um, and, and having um, had Debbie and crew help facilitate a, a Posse partner retreat that yeah. the roots of that, as you said it, we didn't know each other before we got on this bus for 26 hours with our mothers. That's in part how you became a cohort, I have no doubt. No, the, the, the benefit of, of that shared experience over those 26 hours, no doubt, um, all of you, if you were, I mean, I, I got, my own story was I, I still can't believe this. I'd never driven on an interstate highway and my parents um, uh, bid me farewell. And I drove on an interstate um, uh, the 400 <laughs> miles to, 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 to go away to college, shaking the entire time. And, um, uh, and you all were, were covering greater geography <laughs> and, and more time zones. Well, probably similar number of time zones, but greater cultural difference um, than, than I was moving west to east across my home state. But I, it, 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 is that something that you all built on intentionally? Because um, the, the whole notion, um, um, uh, you know, as, as, as Debbie so eloquently tells the story of someone she was championing and, and sponsoring who, you know, didn't make it. Um, and, um, well, why? Well, I missed my posse. Um, uh, was the bus a part of how you helped think about building the social capital of, uh, of those cohorts uh, as you began the work? Um, uh, you know, as she began the work at, at, at Posse. 
Well, I think, you know, I mean, that's so well said, you know, and I think it's important to note historically, you know, uh, over 30 years ago, that bus ride happened. And at the time, you know, now the Posse Foundation is, uh, you know, an incredible and comprehensive college access program with great success nationally. And as you know, Jay, I got to pay it forward in my career and uh, continued to build and lead the organization. I went back actually leading Posse as executive vice president to Debbie Beal. And that was one of my greatest joys. I think, you know, like uh, any uh, college initiative, or when you think about what works for college students around not only access, but success and college completion. And this is certainly on my mind as I think about the extraordinary um, opportunity to, to lead college track. You know, everyone needs a cohort. Everybody needs a, a home base. And um, every student wants to flourish and have a sense of belonging. And some students come to that with greater privileges and resources and connections and family histories than others. But at our core as human beings, and especially at residential colleges and universities, we're looking for our people. You know, when we go to, yes, the college access process has gotten very complicated, but the bottom line is when you ask students, I've learned this as a president, as a dean, as an EVP, as a faculty member, you know, why they ultimately decided to really be in a place uh, that gets to have the great fortune of, of students contributing to that place. It's, you know, I could go there and I could find my people. You know, I could see myself there. Uh, I took a tour and this student just related to me and made me feel, you know, I went in a classroom and I felt like I could be in that classroom and feel affirmed. And so, you know, we, um, when we were on that bus ride, it was before Posse had developed a pre-collegiate training program and, you know, this incredible dynamic assessment process. I mean, so many program components that really came from great research, but also lots of student input. Um, I was there, you know, uh, in the day where it was just beginning and we were just learning. And uh, I'm so proud of the fact that my alma mater, Vanderbilt University, where I ended up serendipitously going to college. And I now serve on the board of trust, you know, now well over seven years. It's been amazing. I never imagined sitting in that boardroom. You know, I never imagined getting a PhD in clinical psych from Duke University. A Vanderbilt uh, transformed my life. It was no easy road, by the way, but it was possible because of a strength-based program an institution that affirmed my identity and took a chance. And since then has proven over and over again that uh, talent is everywhere, opportunity is not. And uh, that's what college track, you know, and, and certainly my work as president of Ithaca College um, absolutely has been about um, really um, addressing those barriers, right? That so many young people face um, and leaders of course too, we think about who gets to be in boardrooms and on senior leadership teams and emerging leaders, which I know you work very closely with. Um, that matters to me at my core. So that bus ride for me is not just about what it was like being a student. It's also been about what it's like being a person of color in higher ed, being the many, the first of many things 
yeah. and hoping that there will be many, many people to follow. So. Amen. Well, uh, no doubt. Um, our, our colleague, uh, Shirley Pippen, talks about the many firsts in her own life. And, yes. Uh, um, and and, uh, and, and uh, referentially calls um, folks who are the first, the pioneers. You've been a pioneer. I, you know, I want to, um, I'm, I'm going to skip around a little more to the normal, but I, because I, I, I think that you went right to an interesting sort of place. I'd love for you to talk about advice you have for new leaders or those who aspire to leadership. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, I think it's important for the listeners to know that uh, although I have uh, had many firsts and I've gotten the tremendous opportunity to lead across several sectors of higher ed, you know, I mentioned a national nonprofit, uh, like an ecosystem like Posse, being at private uh, liberal arts colleges like Middlebury and Lafayette, and a regional research public university like Rutgers, while um, sitting on the board of Vanderbilt University, a global right private research university. It's it's an amazing place, and those and then leading right Ithaca College, a private comprehensive college in. Um, New York State, uh, deeply, deeply rooted in the arts. And um, why do I mention this? One of the things that I would absolutely say is, you know, I didn't plan this trajectory. (laughs) I have not been a careerist around. There has not been. I often get people ask me, were you planning on being a president? You know, how did you move from this place to that? They're so uh, interesting and different. And so for me, I think great leaders really emerge out of being who they authentically are and following their passions. And so I say to my students all the time, you know, if you can wake up every day and feel inspired by what you do and lay your head at night, feeling very clear that you are doing the best you can in serving a public good, that's an amazing thing. Um, So my first order of uh, advice is, you know, really dig deep and find out what you're passionate about and what kind of environment. Is it a big public institution? Is it a small private little place? Is it a community college or four-year college? You know, Um, uh, and then um, (laughs) break the rules. And Jay, I I say that just because I think the other thing that my career trajectory um, really speaks to you know, regardless of my educational background, which has been incredibly rich, you know, at Vanderbilt and at Duke um, and the places that I've been able to occupy, I have really, I encourage people to work across sectors. I think the future of higher ed will require presidents, VPs, deans, CFOs, you name it, board members, donors, right? People who actually understand the complicated landscape of higher ed at its fullest and a deepest way. And it used to be, you could correct me because you're the expert here, but it used to be that I think people felt that they needed to be in a box of, this is where I'm raised and this is where I stay. And now I think some of the most talented people are going from you know, a major research university to a community college, you know, a liberal arts college to a big, big school. And, um, and, you know, in all kinds of ways. And I, I think I'm proof of that. And uh, it's been incredibly dynamic and invigorating. So first be yourself, figure out what you're passionate about, 
and then definitely dare to move into spaces that are going to really push you and having mentors and people that will look out for you and be your truth tellers and give you really good advice um, and push you is the other element that for me has been, you know, since I got on that bus, I've had mentors deeply invested in me and they don't stop. I mean, I have them now. I count on them now with some of the most complicated decisions that I've had to make in my career. Uh, well, I love that. And if you will, um, you in some ways invited um, uh, some response. Um, surely, I so appreciate the points that you made. Earlier, you said people don't understand the richness um, and the depth of the talent that's out there. Having lived now in the world of search, I spent my entire career hearing people say, ah, oh, the, you know, the talent pipeline is drying up. I do not see it. Um, there are particular disciplines and specialties where we don't have um, uh, uh, enough professionals. But at the presidential um, uh, uh, level, I see extraordinary pools over and over and over. And so you're right about you're right about that. Secondly. Um, I am someone who is also like you. Um, I've never had the privilege of serving in a community college, um, but I have served in, in uh, you know, in, in elite um, uh, public research institutions. I've served in regional publics, and I spent about half of my career in uh, in, in, in selective private um, uh, environments, and and um, that's not normative, and it's and it's too bad because I do think it enriches our experiences and yet people treat it as if you cannot, you gotta be in your sector. And I am forever challenging search committees um, uh, to try and catch themselves from what I would call um, sector and prestige bias. Because there are yes. great leaders in all kinds of different higher educational settings and frankly, non-higher ed settings um, uh, with the, the right gifts and the right stuff to be effective leaders. So thank you for, um, for um, uh, you know, inviting a little bit of commentary because I, I really do believe that this is something that, that needs to change. And then finally, um, I believe this with all of my heart as well. Um, you talked about how important it was as a, um, a young um, person making your way from Brooklyn to Vanderbilt to be affirmed. Um, none of us ever outgrow the value and the need of being affirmed um, That's at right. every point in our life. And um, I, I think you're right to say that our mentors, um, our relationships may change, um, um, but just as good loving parents, um, mentors also have a way of, of, of you know, authentically affirming us and, and, and also giving us the tough love when we need it. So um, I Absolutely. love your advice for new leaders. <laughs> I, 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 tell me what in your mind makes a good leader. And, and here, let me clarify, as I always do, I don't mean grade B. I mean good as in virtuous, effective, and, and ultimately successful in the work that they do and producing results. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I will say this, uh, uh, being very humble uh, in that I, I consider it an enormous privilege to have done what I've done in my career. And uh, it, it takes vulnerability. It takes constant learning. Um, it takes tremendous gratitude. 
And so um, I uh, personally, my philosophy and what I've adopted as a leader really comes out of a servant leadership model, right? That, you know, this is a, an earlier point too about advice is, you know, when you think about occupying different spaces and doing what you're passionate about, you need to find a place that also is aligned with who you are and who your values, what your values are. And if you're really fortunate, that happens most of the time. And sometimes you figure out that that's not the case. But for the most part, if you're looking for that and not just a job and a big title, you can actually, um, you know, have a tremendous impact and do very meaningful things and have fun and have joy, you know, in these really hard jobs. But good leadership for me is, you know, people who, um, who show up, who are authentic, who I think a really important feature of a good leader, a great leader, is someone who is a value-driven leader, who um, has core values with great conviction that are not negotiated, especially when they're tested during enormously complicated times, like a pandemic, <laughs> like uh, you know the rise of racial polarization in America, our democracy being called to question, you know the unapologetic um, impact of climate change, right? I mean, just to name a few, these are the things, these are the times that we're living in, right? Yeah. While the entire value and purpose of higher ed is being turned inside out and scrutinized on a daily basis. So that takes someone who um, is really willing to look deeply in, uh, inside and reflect, but also a really important feature of that is you have to surround yourself. You have to be confident enough to surround yourself with people who fill your blind spots and tell you the truth, even when you don't want to hear it. And I think uh, some of the downfalls of some leaders are people who I think sometimes lack the confidence and want to be surrounded by people who are going to say yes and agree all the time. First of all, that's not interesting. <laughs> but secondly, it doesn't allow you to get pushed and, and to grow. And most importantly, to do right by students, to do what you're supposed to do for students to have the most consistent and best outcomes to flourish um, and fully participate in this endeavor of, uh, of education. So, And you also have to have good humor you have to have a hobby. <laughs> you have to be a real person, a full person. And I think, unfortunately, um, for students, I, I talk about this with them all the time because I think people don't realize, and I, I certainly have been on public display about this, you know, real leaders have to be full people with full lives. And having full lives means, you know, you have growth spurts and you have hard things that happen in your life and you have joyful things that happen and they're all integrated. They're all part of you, you having the greatest level of impact and having empathy for the people that you serve and the mission that you serve. And so uh, good leaders are not, you know, these polished, perfect people. They're, they're people who bring different lenses and that's, um, uh, that's really important. And then, and then I would just say lastly, uh, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list, Jay, but I think great leaders are unapologetic about the fierce <laughs> importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. And I'm incredibly proud of my work at Ithaca College with my senior leadership team, with my board, uh, uh, really, really doing the work 
to intentionally create spaces and seats at the table that better reflect the lived experiences of students all over America. And I'm very excited that uh, at College Track, that's certainly the case, and I will be uh, building off of those, uh, those strengths. Thank you. I'm gonna go in a slightly different direction again. You just mentioned yeah. the Ithaca College Board. And um, you know, one of the wise things I recall a particularly well-informed commentator, um, Jeff Salingo, saying a number of years ago, as I had him as a guest at Susquehanna University, is he, his observation was that many people um, overestimate the speed of change in higher education and underestimate the extent of it. Now, this was back when the MOOCs were going to take over. And I'd love for you just to reflect a bit on that um, characterization and whether it still holds up in this period of really accelerating pace of change in higher ed. So, you know, I'm a little biased. I'm a huge fan of Jeff Salingo. He happens to be a, a proud IC alum, uh, the former editor-in-chief of our student paper, The Ithacan. Yeah. And, uh, and now uh, we have the great, great fortune of having him on our board. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, Jeff has it right in, 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 that, uh, in, in that message. And that is, so if you think about, you know, some of the things that I just mentioned about the pandemic, the multiple pandemics that we have faced um, for well over a year and a half now, it's incredible. Um, uh, I, in times of crisis and sea change, like, like what we've been facing, um, which was a long time coming, although we didn't imagine that a pandemic would be the, the thing to really kind of uh, push us forward in a way. You know, I, I say to leaders in higher ed all the time, you know, if what we just experienced the last 17 months doesn't push us to accelerate and have a certain sense of urgency around what we need to do to innovate and reimagine what we do and this model, whether it's the financial model or the way that we're delivering instruction, um, if that doesn't push us, I don't know what will. You know, during a time of crisis, you see the most honest version of institutions and organizations. I think that the, it is hard to hide the true culture of a place. And the strongest places have been places that really understand who they are and what they're about and who they're serving. And even those places have been um, challenged. So, you know, I think that the, uh, the, the experience that we've all been enduring has also exposed huge inequities and issues in our sector, but also the need for us to realize um, the fundamental truth that none of us are going to uh, move through the future of education by ourselves. And so it's going to take cross-sector partnerships. It's going to take really collaborating in real form. And something that you said earlier um, uh, around certain sectors uh, being very traditional and kind of closed in. Um, I think what happened during the pandemic also encouraged work between institutions that aren't normally 
situated together are thought of yeah. as partners. Yeah. And um, I think that's a necessary uh, part of our, of our future. Thank you. I want to move us into um, what I call a lightning round. Shorter questions from me. You can answer at whatever length you want. Who's most influenced you? Oh, my parents and my maternal grandmother, for sure. Yes. I get my work ethic and my activism. Uh, and I do, I, uh, Jay, you probably know this about me already, but I have uh, thought of myself as an activist, a revolutionary within a very traditional kind of bureaucratic system. Yeah. And, and one that, you know, hasn't always been traditionally built for people like me or members of my family. And so um, uh, my work ethic and, and core values really, really comes from, from those three individuals. Thank you. What book or books have most influenced you? Oh, well, you know, I am uh, married to a poet, uh, Avan Jordan, who's amazing. And I'm a little, I'm a little biased in terms of what he does, but he has a, a beautiful collection. Uh, uh, and the book is titled Magnolia with a C, M-A-C-N-O-L-I-A. And it's about the first African-American child um, who got to the final round of the National Spelling Bee. Um, well before, by the way, Magnolia Cox grew up in Akron, Ohio, well before uh, Zaila, who just won. Uh, Magnolia did not get to win, and that story is tragic, um, but an important one. So that, that book is very inspiring to me on, on many levels about race and gender uh, in America, but also about how a moment in a child's life can really define um, who they are. Um, and then I love Lonnie Guineer's uh, The Tyranny of Meritocracy. Um, it was a, a joy to participate in that book when she was working on it. Um, uh, I think Scott Page's work uh, in uh, The Difference um, really kind of demonstrating empirically the power of diversity um, in solving really complicated issues. Um, the list goes on and on. But most recently, I would say uh, Julia Alvarez, my, my fellow Dominicana, um, the first time I saw myself and my experience on the page was with uh, her debut novel, How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents. And she just wrote a beautiful book. It's called, the, um, it's called Afterlife. And uh, I encourage readers to, to check it out. She's wonderful. And she's a Middlebury graduate and uh, really, really love her. Awesome. Favorite memory of your time at Vanderbilt? Oh gosh, there's so many amazing uh, times at, at Vanderbilt that were challenging and so joyful. Um, I guess, you know, one of my most favorites is graduating with my posse mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, walking across that stage after the journey. My parents, my father, I told you about my mom yeah. getting on that bus. Like many first-generation college students, my father, a cab driver who worked six days a week, 14-hour shifts, the first time he stepped foot on Vanderbilt's campus, again, this is before the internet, right? No website to look at, um, was my graduation day. And that was extraordinary. 
And several years later, many years later, I won't date myself, um, I uh, spoke at Peabody College, the School for Education, as a distinguished uh, alumna. And uh, that was incredible. That was incredible to be in a cap and gown again, not as a trustee, not as a college graduate, but uh, receiving this incredible award um, for my body of work as, as an alum of uh, the Vanderbilt community. No, no doubt and well-deserved. Uh, is there a favorite tradition on one of the campuses that you've served or attended that you would hold up? <laughs> oh, there's such good stuff, tradition. Well, um, there's so many wonderful things, but I would say, so at Middlebury College, uh, where I had the great honor of serving as Dean of the College and uh, VP for Student Affairs. And Middlebury's been a longtime posse school since the late 90s. Uh, Ron Leibowitz was my, uh, my boss, the president there. He's now at Brandeis, uh, someone I really, really admire. Um, uh, they have a tradition of admitting a Feb class, February uh, entry students that start in the dead of winter in Vermont, and uh, and they finish after a traditional class in May. You know, so it's a very positive thing to be a super senior. In their case, they are Febs. They're in a category of really special students. So think about that, about the fact that you can change something and the idea of starting late and finishing later um, to be a really positive thing, right? The tradition at Middlebury, if you're a Feb and you graduate with the Feb class, is you ski down the snowball mountain with your class in cap and gown. And I think it's one of the few schools that has that tradition and uh, that category of students. And I thoroughly loved it. And as a Brooklyn girl who was never in a small town like rural Vermont in Middlebury, I just was captivated by, first of all, all the snow, but secondly, <laughs> that something beautiful and fun could happen in the cold winter with so much joy and students just coming down that, coming down that mountain. It was the best thing every year. I love it. Um, that's a new <laughs> one for me, I love it. Hey, you have worked in and around the higher ed space um, most all of your career. Obviously your training as a clinical psychologist, um, uh, you know, would have, could have taken you into uh, you know, clinical settings and other worlds. Any other forks not, taken that that, uh, that that you would have thought about? Oh, wow. Uh, that is such a great question, Jay, because there's always, right? You know, the top, the, the secret, and I tell students, sometimes I share the secret because it's really fun. As I say to students, the thing that people don't realize about college administrators and people who work at organizations like College Track, right? And the Posse Foundation is, we get to be in college for the rest of our lives. <laughs> we get to be, students keep us honest, it's energetic, it's youthful energy. And so I, and, and with that, to your question, it also gives me such a vibrant environment to constantly learn, to be a lifelong learner. And so I would say as far as turns not taken yet, there are, you know, I have hobbies and things that I want to learn that I just need to create more room for. Um, and so in my secret life, if I had not pursued what I am doing now, I would be an interior designer. 
And so I prom and you, you would notice this a little bit if you were in my office or, you know, I like to help people with the design projects, no training, by the way, but I would, I love, I hope in my future life. And now in my present life, I can find new time to kind of take a master workshop or do something like that. And I also would love to take up an instrument very seriously. My husband, Van, plays the trombone and practices regularly, even though he's a full-time faculty member in, you know, in an English department. And I really admire that he gets to create that space for something that he loves so much. So um, dance classes, design classes, I, all, all of that, they're, uh, they're, they're all on my list. And I, I shouldn't wait too long to do it. Fabulous. Well, you, uh, you're right about that. None of us should. <laughs> It's a blink of the eye. Well, one of our traditions here on Leaders on Leadership is we close by asking our guests to share with our listeners the distinctive qualities, or if you will, the secret sauce or organizational DNA that um, has been special and brought you to Ithaca um, and, uh, and also um, uh, drew you um, uh, to uh, answer the call to college track. So you reflect on both of those, if you would. Sure, sure. You know, I think the organizational DNA, when you think about culture, is ultimately about going back to what I said about students and what they have to feel at a visceral level on a college campus. You know, you want to go to a place that really intentionally fosters a sense of belonging, of constant learning, and most importantly, in the belonging that you get to be your full self, you know, that you get to be your whole person and you're not asking people to check their identities at the door. And that was a core value of mine at Ithaca. And I'm so grateful um, that I got to take that on with my amazing team and board. And when I think of college track, wow, you know, thousands of students around the country, first generation college students, low income students, um, and you know, the, the core identity there is pursuing a life, facilitating a life of opportunity, choice, and power. And most importantly, democratizing potential. And if you're going to democratize potential, you have to create a space where your staff, the people who are doing the work, the students are going to feel like they can fully be who they are. And, uh, and belong. And so I said earlier, you know, talent is everywhere, opportunity is not. And I think at both Ithaca and College Track, my dream and what I'm activated by is to create the highest level of opportunity for all that talent and to activate real, um, uh, a real democracy, right, around developing and democratizing potential. So that's my life's work. That's what I get up for every day. And I'm so um, grateful that uh, I've been able to do that fully as a leader uh, and will continue to do so in, in these really important spaces. Shirley Cayado, thank you very much for um, having that passion for democratizing potential for opening doors, for affirming, for encouraging, and, and, um, and helping countless generations of students across um, uh, 
um, the career that you've had thus far and all that lies ahead. It's been a real happy pleasure for us to have had you here as a, as a guest, and we're grateful for your insights and wisdom about leadership. Thank you, Jay. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Listeners, we welcome your suggestions or thoughts um, for leaders we might feature in upcoming segments. You can send those to leadershippodcast at academicsearch.org. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the Academic Search website. Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition and through leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. Again, it's been a special joy to host Shirley Cayado on our show today. Thank you again, Shirley, for being with us. Thanks, Jay.